0: Hello there. Servus. My name is Haysan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. What do I got for you today? Uh, Today we're going to talk about strikes in the UK. We're going to talk about Turkey and Israel improving their relations and the assassination attempt of Alexander Dugan. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. The U.S. and South Korea hold military exercises. Russia conducts its own Vostok joint military drills. Which featured China. That was some of the big hubbub. And Russia is currently planning on another joint military drill. This time with its CSTO allies. Uh, That's the collective security treaty organization. That is often overlooked. But it's there. So if. Anything happens with, say, Lithuania and Kaliningrad, or if, say, Poland or Lithuania were to do something to Belarus, that would trigger Russia's military alliance. And then you'd have NATO against, not Russia, but NATO against the CSTO. That, I imagine, would be a bit too much for them to handle right now, considering we're depleting all of our resources, giving it away to the Ukrainians, and then it's getting blown up. Well, that's just something to think about. We have the U.S. to send another three quarters of a billion dollars to Ukraine. Now, usually I'd be upset, but you know what? You know what? We're moving in the right direction here. Now, if we could just get that down to, say, three quarters of a million, then three quarters of a thousand, and then just three quarters and maybe a dime, you know, we'd be set, you know, and then we give them three quarters of nothing. (laughs) (laughs) that'll make me happy but we have jihadist attacks which have rocked Mogadishu killing at least 13 people as of the time when I got the news could be more Uh, but 13 people confirmed dead because of these bombings Uh, we have major flooding in Pakistan and northeast India Uh, well really northern India and eastern India I just wrote northeast India because I was lazy but, on the other side of the Himalayas, though, we have a straight-up drought in China. So, I, well, it's like, I, I imagine China's, dr- <laughs> uh, they're dying of thirst while they're watching India drown. So, uh, not enough water can be a problem, and too much water can be a bit of a problem as well. Uh, Western Europe also has a bit of a drought going on, and, I imagine that's not going to... These combined natural disasters on the major food-producing regions of the world probably are not going to alleviate the food crisis, which, even though grain shipments have resumed from Ukraine, is probably still going to happen, but it's just going to be a bit less severe than it was being projected to be. So, So, a lot of people are still going to go hungry. But, China, in other news, has interestingly enough, moved to restrict abortion in all but, quote, medically necessary cases. Uh, end quote. So what we have here, and this comes at a rather interesting time here in the U.S., is where there's still a little bit of hubbub in the United States as to uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and which really didn't abolish it like a lot of people thought it did. It just bumped it down to the states. So each state gets to decide whether they do abortions or not and if so how how much do they allow it up to is it 3 weeks 6 weeks 9 weeks you know, etc China is now moving to restrict abortion altogether except in medically necessary cases it's also looking to you know clamp down on unwanted pregnancies as well but what this shows me is that China is now turning its eye towards its demographics uh because they had I believe their biggest shortfall in births either last year or in twenty twenty, so even though they have a a billion and a half people, uh, that's gonna be a problem in time because a lot of their they if you look at the demographic structure of China, it's sort of really wide and then it sh- turns sharply inward as you go to the younger and younger demographics. Which essentially means that the country is aging incredibly fast with the bulk of its population be getting older and older. And there's not that as many. And there's not as many young people as there are compared to people in say their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And so they're now trying to address their demographic issues. So I'll say the demographic recovery of China is in progress. I don't know if they'll be able to turn this around. At least not with the policies that they have in place right now, but this is probably considering that China's now changing its stance on these types of things, uh, particularly in case of abortion. I'd imagine that from this point on, we're going to see um, more coming from China with regards to its population policy. They've already gotten rid of the one-child policy, made it two-child, then got rid of that and made it three-child policy. And considering that the birth rate is still falling... I imagine they'll eventually use force, and make in make it a de facto five-child policy instead. But that's China. Ukraine has celebrated its independence uh, on the twentieth of this month, so that's the twenty-eighth of August. And I'll add here, perhaps for the last time, because again, I'm not entirely sure if there's going to be a Ukraine when the war is over. Most. Well, basically everyone else speculates that there will be, and it'll be a rump state. I speculate that there won't be a Ukraine at all. It'll be a geographic expression. So if I'm right, this will be the last time they celebrate that at all. Because I I don't imagine there'll be another Ukrainian state for quite some time. But I guess they celebrate while they can. Uh, Zulus in South Africa have crowned a new king. That is Misuzulu Zulu. And yes, that is Zulu twice. Uh, his first name has Zulu at the end, and then his last name is Zulu. So, there's that. The Solomon Islands, uh, a group of islands, well, an island nation, would be more accurate, to the northeast of Australia, a little bit more northeast of Papua New Guinea, they have uh, gained a bit more attention to themselves. We talked about them before they had some riots before and there was talk about how china's building alliances with the solomons and how we we went over how that's not quite military yet it's not quite there but they're building relations but it's not quite to the degree that it's being hyped up as um and this is sort of exemplifying that uh in the form that the Solomon Islands has acquired a $66 million loan from China so that it can pay Chinese telecom firm Huawei to build 161 telecommunications towers across the country. So they're taking advantage of the Belt and Road. That's, that's what it looks like to me. Now, uh, I hmm, is the Solomon Islands part of the Belt and Road? Not entirely sure but if they are they're taking full advantage of it using these loans to modernize their own infrastructure and of course countries behaving like sovereign entities but sovereign entities that choose china over the united states uh, this has sparked in my view quite unnecessary concerns that uh this is some sort of major alliance to cut the us off from australia because of the physical location of the solomon islands my response is, why do we need to get to Australia? Uh, no, no one can reel me that. But alas, the, the, that's uh, the sort of stuff coming out from our side over here uh, in response to what happens over there. But Erdogan in Turkey, we're just gonna we're just gonna jump all the way over to the Middle East here. Erdogan has met with. Zelensky Erdogan is the president of Turkey he's met with the president of Ukraine and they, they had a brief meeting you know uh, further further if there was any doubt though they further solidified the fact that Turkey keeps becoming more and more important and relevant geostrategically courtesy of the Ukraine war. Turkey is also conducting air raids in Syria which has earned them an unlikely friend. And we'll get into that later on in the episode. But uh, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, has brought back the Mother Heroin Award. Uh, that's heroin as in a female hero, not the drug. Uh, and this is a title, Mother Heroin, this is a title uh, given to mothers who have raised 10 or more kids past the one-year mark. And this is uh, an award that was first brought up after, well, not quite after, but in 1944, under the Soviet Union. When they were, anyone who's familiar with the Soviet experience of World War II, they were losing people by the tens of millions. So, people who were having kids by the the tens and the double digits, so to speak, were national assets. And so, Putin has brought this back. So, I'll say this as well for Russia... That the demographic recovery of Russia is in progress. I don't think that most Russian women are eager to have ten kids, or nor do I believe they're in a rush to, or even five for that matter. But far be it from me to predict that. And who knows? Maybe they'll, and maybe they'll compromise for four kids each, and that'll fix Russia's demographics in about twenty years. But it's hey, it's something. It's something. It's more than you're gonna get, well, it's more than we're getting currently from a lot of other governments. So the other governments I can name that are even bothering to address population policy uh, from a birth rate standpoint rather than just import more people, uh, the only countries I can think of would be Hungary and Sweden, Iceland and Japan. Those are the, those are the only other ones I can think of at the moment which is an incredibly short list. Yeah. So we, we will see. We will see. But if Russia is successful in these endeavors, and I guess the same goes to a more limited degree in China, uh, given the, the trends that have been going on in both of these countries, if Russia is successful in this, even just moderately, to where their population decline is even sl- slightly offset by new births, that'll put them in a better position relative to the rest of Europe, who is also going through similar demographic uh, declines. They aren't having enough kids, and none of them are adjusting the problem through births. They're adjusting the problem through immigration, which is just creating more stress on their societies. So, as Europe depopulates from people getting old and dying of... The things that old people die of, disease, natural causes, things like that. As that happens in Europe, Europe's population starts to decline, even if Russia's population is still in decline, which I believe it will before, you know, they reach an equilibrium. If, again, if this is successful, and I've, I've gone into depth about the internal populations of countries, groups of people that have more kids will inevitably overtake the groups of people that don't have more kids but because the groups of people that aren't having kids make up such a majority, it skews the average downwards. It's easy to bring an average down and hard to bring an average up. And I theorized that over time, groups within countries that tend to have more kids will simply become the, fa- the new face of these countries. Whoever's having more kids in France will become the new French. And the same will go for the Germans and the British and the Polish and the Russians. Uh, However, this is probably going to take 60 years to iron out, (laughs) but it's there. But if Russia's decline is slower than everyone else's for the time being, well then that means their power uh, gets greater relative to everyone else in Europe. If Russia's population declines by 10 million, but Germany's decline also by 10 million, well, that leaves Russia with, instead of 145 million people, they have 135 million people. Where Germany goes from 80 million to 70 million. So, instead, so the relative gain there for Russia is that now they're basically double Germany's population. They're closer to being double Germany's population, whereas, as they are now, double Germany's population would mean 160 million people. But if Germany's population is 70 million, double that is only 140 million. So let's play that forward again. They both lose another 10 million people. Russia's now at 125 million people. And Germany's at 60 million people. Now Russia's population is double Germany's population. And this is assuming, assuming the same number of people uh, passing away through age. If Russia's population decline is even with the rest of Europe they become more popular populated uh, they become stronger and more populous relative to the rest of Europe because they have they're starting off from such a high point but if their decline is less than anyone else then that gap becomes even bigger so there, that's something to think about when we think about the decline of populations. It's, it's relative. The relative power of nations. Who's declining and who's declining faster? Because if, de- if you're all falling, but some of you are falling faster than others, well then from the perspective of the people falling, the people that are falling slower are getting farther and farther up. So it's, it's a relative thing. It's a relative thing. And I, I imagine that's going to create some rather interesting dynamics in Europe for the couple decades moving forward. That's Russia and China going after demographics. Um, but in the U.S., we've begun trade talks with Taiwan, which is something I am for. Which is something I'm for. And probably wouldn't be a problem if it was just trade. I mean, we, we trade with Taiwan all the time anyway. That's how we became so dependent on their chips. We, we need trade with them. But you and I both know that this isn't about trade. This is about, this is being done purely out of China last sentiments. This is about how can we get at China? How can we, how can we offend China? How can we make, how can we show China up in China's neighborhood, right on China's doorstep? How can we, how can we make them feel uh, like we're the big guys on the block and we can do whatever we want? Oh, we're going to do a trade deal with Taiwan. Okay. If it was about trade, I think even the Chinese wouldn't have a problem with it. But we all know it's not about trade. It's about some sort of geopolitical game of trying to contain and fight China. And the Chinese aren't going to go for that. And we wouldn't either if anybody was doing it on our doorstep. Which is why I find it so hard to, to understand people that advocate doing these types of things. It just doesn't make sense. At least not to me. So we'll see what new problems this creates. As if... Nancy Pelosi and then a, a whole slew of second-rate politicians going to Taiwan didn't stir the pot enough. Now we're doing this. But we'll see where it goes. And I, I, I imagine we won't have to wait too long to see where that goes. Now, and lastly, we have Egypt's central bank governor, and this is the head of their central bank, Terry Amer. He has resigned. And this has caused uh, sort of a uh, political crisis in Egypt and we'll see what happens from there. We will see what happens from there. But that is the not-quite-rapid-fire news. But we'll get to the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alright, let's get into the meat. And we'll start with the assassination attempt on Alexander Dugan. Uh, last week there was an, an attempt at assassinating this russian historical scholar alexander Dugin, and he and his daughter uh last week they were attending this traditionalist festival in russia where they celebrated traditional russian culture and food and dance and music and what have you so they, they were having themselves a good time but it was on the way home when things got complicated uh they were about to drive home Alexander Dugan, he, he decided he was going to, and this is out of pure chance, he decided he was going to get into the car with one of his acquaintances rather than driving his own car home. So he and his daughter, they, they parted ways, and he was with his acquaintances. I, I, I'm not entirely sure what their relationship is, so I won't call them friends or not. So he goes with them, and presumably they were going to drive him home or they were going to stay at their place and what have you. And Dugan's daughter drove his car home. Or at least that's what she was trying to do. Because as it happened, a car bomb was placed under the driver's seat of Dugan's car. But again, Dugan, by chance, had decided to get into the car with someone else, rather than driving home in his own car. His daughter took his car home, so when the bomb went off... It killed her instead of him. Uh, This has sparked a whole bunch of, well, I'll say bad reporting, but it's also caused a spike in tensions. And uh, it's sent a lot of accusations flying. Uh, Russian officials have blamed Ukraine. The Ukrainians have denied this. Uh, The Russians have also accused the countries backing Ukraine of being partially responsible for this. And we've sort of gone quiet on the issue. Or at least the governments in Europe and America have gone quiet. Media outlets have taken to this saying that uh, in general this was a good thing. And uh, it's weird. It's really weird that they call Alexander Dugan and. And a nationalist, they call him far-right, they call him, uh, every name in the book that you can think of, they call him that. And, and again, it's just really strange to watch. Uh, various media outlets have flat-out refused to acknowledge any potential, even potential, you know, involvement of, say, the U.S. government, or Ukraine, or anybody that the Russians have accused and this is in line with the usual dismissal of everything that Russia says as being false or mistrue. So they dismiss that and instead go for an angle where maybe it was anti-war folks in Russia or people who don't, people who align more with the West, but inside of Russia. Maybe these were freedom fighters or or maybe they, they were Ukrainian agents. Then that much has been potentially conceded. You know, they, they've talked about that potential. But not potential beyond Ukraine. So it's been a very strange you know, thing to watch. Because I don't do daily news. I do weekly news. So I get to sit back and watch other people do this thing. And it's been interesting, to say the least, watching other people report on this particularly the more mainstream outlets. Uh, but that wasn't the extent of their, in my opinion, bad reporting. Because news outlets in Europe and the U.S. have reported on this uh, as though Alexander was a terrorist, which is not true if there there's no evidence to support this, but that, that's the way that they speak about him uh, almost getting bombed. Again, his daughter is the one who died, but this is a good thing in the minds of these news outlets, which is crazy, and I'll get into one particularly crazy take that I heard later on, actually right before I recorded the podcast, but these outlets, they've gone as far as to call uh, Alexander Dugan, they've gone as far as to call him Putin's brain or Putin's spiritual guide, Uh, they've called him the mastermind of the war behind... Uh, the mastermind behind the war in Ukraine. And it's it's wild to watch these, acu- these wild accusations getting just tossed around. And I, like I said, this in- entire incident spawned a flurry of accusations just getting thrown around. But none crazier than the stuff that I've just read off to you. Oh, well, actually, no, there is one crazier, but I'll get into that later on in this segment but it's so strange like usually when this sort of thing happens there's at least the attempt you know there's the attempt of professionalism maintaining professionalism oh this is a strategic strike and it was aimed at america's enemies so that we can be safe here at home you know something like that there was none of that with this there was absolutely none of that with this and case in point uh, this little anecdote that I have here because again right before I recorded the episode I was watching a video that dr. Steve Turley had made on this subject matter and in uh, in it there was a particularly how should I say a venomous clip I think that's a good word to use here, a a venomous clip of a BBC anchor describing the events. And in that clip, the anchor uh, called Dugan and his daughter fascists. He justified the death of Daria, uh, that's Dugan's daughter, Uh, he justified the death of Daria Dugan by saying that she was carrying on his, quote, legacy of fascism, end quote, And that while the bomb was targeted at Alexander, which means that eh, Daria Dugan was quite literally an innocent civilian caught in the crossfire of of an assassination attempt. In spite of that, this anchor goes on to say that while the bomb targeted uh, Alexander, both of them being taken out, and and this is a quote, both of them being taken out would have been, quote, an especially attractive way of fighting this battle end quote. And he's referring to the war in Ukraine when he says fighting this battle. He also stated his belief that, quote, this has to give Putin pause, and it's certainly sending shockwaves through the Russian elite, end quote. So you know how I was talking about uh, how it it didn't get crazier than what I said? That That was the crazy I was referring to when I said there was one that got crazier. And that's insane. Uh, But the problem, or problems, with such an assessment begins with the fact that Alexander Dugan's political affiliation was anti-fascist. And I guess we can make comments about Antifa here in the United States, so I won't necessarily give too much credit to that. But on top of that being his Official political affiliation He had no influence in Russian government. He had never met Putin face-to-face and Is a critic of both Putin and the Russo-Ukrainian war So that's where the that's where the problems of this analysis starts, that's where the problems start, but I'm not even gonna get into the the I, I, I'm not I'm not gonna focus on the the segment on the bad reporting of this incident. Uh, that's not quite what I want to focus on. I imagine many others are gonna do that for me and probably better than me, although not quite with my lovely vocabulary. but I uh, I'm not gonna focus on the the bad reporting as the the meaning for this segment. instead, I'll direct you to Dr. Steve Tully for that, because I feel his video does a pretty good job of exemplifying that. What I'm instead going to do is I'm gonna point out that this is the kind of coverage we can expect moving forward. And I'm not just talking about the war between Russia and Ukraine coverage on that. I mean, this is is what we're gonna get. I mean, uh, going back again, they, 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 All that stuff that was said about him is just blatantly untrue. That he's a fascist. That the death of his daughter was justified because she was carrying on his legacy of fascism. That both of them being taken out would have been a, a, an attractive way of fighting this battle. How does the death of a man who is not in Russian government has never met Putin and has, as far as we can tell, no influence over Putin, and the death of a man who is a critic of Putin and, as the media would put it, Putin's war, how does the death of a man who falls into those three categories spell out an a f- attractive way of fighting this battle? Because we already know that the outlets on this side of The Iron Curtain are pro-Ukraine. So how does the death of of this man's daughter and the attempted death of this man uh, in general, how does his death and the death of his daughter equate to an attractive way of fighting the battle? Because you know they're they're in Ukraine's corner here. How does this help Ukraine? Uh, What does this do for Ukraine? It, It does nothing for Ukraine. Again, he is not in Russian government. He has no influence over the Russian government. He's never met Putin, not face-to-face. He's a critic of Putin and a critic of the war. How does his death further Ukraine's cause? It doesn't. It really doesn't. But this kind of nonsensical coverage is what we can expect Moving forward. And again, I'm not talking just about the war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Those of us who are those of you who are listening to this podcast probably already expect as much moving forward, which is why you are even bothering to listen to me instead of the news. But we're going to get this. We're going to get more of this, not just on the war. We're going to get this kind of coverage on China, on Iran, North Korea, anytime. There's any kind of death or deliberate assassination attempt on someone from any country we deem the enemy. This is the kind of coverage we're going to expect. If there was an an assassination of Chinese officials tomorrow and we woke up and this or that low level Chinese staffer was assassinated with, say, a car bomb. uh, uh, And let's just say this is. After China initiates a war against Taiwan. This is exactly the type of coverage. We can expect to see. Coming out of these media outlets. They're pro-war. They all are. And I I can propose the solution all day. I do on a regular basis. It starts with an I. And ends with ism. <laughs> but this is the coverage we can expect. And I, I really want to hammer this home. I know I brought it up in the episode talking about Nancy's trip to Taiwan and the nonsense that came with that but this is what we can expect this is really the type of coverage we can expect if someone dies it, it doesn't matter it, it doesn't it really doesn't matter not in the eyes of the people reporting on this uh, in these mainstream outlets because He was in with a country we deemed to be the enemy. And even when the person who died was an innocent civilian, again, Alexander's daughter, uh, Daria, had literally nothing to do with any of this, even if we assume that Alexander was Putin's spiritual guide. (laughs) Even if we assume that Alexander was Putin's brain. And even if we assume that Alexander was a fascist, and even if we assume that he was the mastermind behind the war in Ukraine, what does his daughter have to do with any of that? She has nothing. She is literally an innocent civilian. And the, uh, the assassination was an attempt on Alexander. But even when the death is of an innocent civilian... If that innocent civilian has any connection whatsoever to uh, the enemy, then uh, that's just that. It's okay now. Uh, you were, you were. Uh, oh, it's, uh, it's so nasty. Oh, it's so nasty and shameful, quite frankly. And again, again, this is before you reconcile that Alexander himself him, himself is an innocent civilian. Because even if we assumed all those things about him, Darius is innocent, an innocent civilian. But when you cut through to the facts, he's not any of those things that he's being accused of being, which makes him an innocent civilian. So the assassination of an innocent civilian who was uh, affiliated to an innocent civilian who was accused... Of being a monster war criminal. Is justified. Because they are with. The enemy. And that's the danger of. Playing this game. Where oh uh, oh we have to go. Fight. We have to go do something about Russia. Oh we're, we're Putin's Russia. Oh uh, they're a dictatorship. And it's our job to do something about it. Oh China's uh, this and that. and We have to do something. This is the danger of that. This is the danger of that. Uh, I don't want to say us versus them mentality because there's always going to be an us versus them mentality, but this is the danger of allowing such a mentality to take you into military incursions, to take you into the realm of killing people. This is the danger posed by uh, being irresponsible on the global stage. The This is the danger. This, and this is the danger of propaganda. Because there, there's no other way you can describe the coverage I just laid out to you. There There's no other way you can describe it. these blatantly false accusations. Are reported on as though they were the, the, the honest to God truth about this man. And it's insane. But this is what we can expect on a coverage against someone who is with the enemy. Even if, they're not a, even if they're not a combatant of the war, Alexander is not a combatant here. He's not in the Russian government. He's a civilian. His daughter is even more of a civilian than he is. But that doesn't matter. Because he and his daughter are with the enemy. So, what I want you to do... ...is to take a good long look at this vitriol being sent his way. And he's not even that consequential to a figure. If we're all just being honest with ourselves, he really is not. He's just a person... ...who happens to be Russian... ...in a time when Russia is at war. But take a good long look at the vitriol being sent his way. He's not the important one here. It's what's being said about him and the vitriol being said this way... The way he's being covered, the way the way the death of his daughter is being covered, the death of an innocent civilian is being covered, take a really good look at that, absorb that. This is what Cold War II is going to look like, but instead of Russia, it's going to be China, and anyone who is in with China, anyone who is in with the enemy, is fair game for this type of nonsensical coverage, for this type of blatant assassination attempts. This is what Cold War II is going to look like. This this is another aspect of how it's going to look. Common sense is going to go out the door, and reporting is going to go from being reporting to propaganda. As if it wasn't propaganda already, but I, I can imagine that when it comes to China, you'll have a lot of even alternative news outlets pushing the propaganda because they believe in it. We have to fight China. We have to do something about China. So be wary. Even if you do agree with those positions, be wary. This is what Cold War II is going to look like. But now, we're going to talk about the strikes happening in the UK. Alright, so in the UK, for the past few weeks, the United Kingdom has had a growing number of workers in its transportation industries... Go on strike. And this has really, really started to get going in the the past few weeks, even though in some cases it's been going on for months. but it's really, really uh, hit a stride in these past few weeks. So now I'm gonna cover it. Uh, and so from buses to trains, to docks, to the airlines, People are walking off the job en masse, showing up but not working, and in some cases, not showing up at all. And why? Well, a lot of them have gone on strike over rising costs of living due to massive increases in prices of goods that they have to buy. Like food, like energy. Uh, That energy one's a killer. That energy one is actually a killer um like examples fish and chips are about to become so expensive that uh, even the UK won't be able to have them fish and chips uh like how this is a, this is a staple when you think of food in the United Kingdom you think either porridge or you think fish and chips and yet fish and chips are about to go away because of various uh, sanctions that have been levied against Russia, and apparently, r- goods coming from Russia were integral to the fish and chips industry in the UK. Now, how the hell that becomes the case, I honestly could not tell you. I could not tell you. But apparently, that is the case. Uh, you have the you have the inflation running high because the government keeps printing money, although. I will give them credit. They're not printing money as fast as we do in the United States. So that's one we have over on the UK. Uh, It'll hit us in the ass a a little bit harder. But hey, at least we get to be number one in that regard. But so food is going up. Uh, The price of grain is going up. The price of meat is going up. it's It's all going up. Then you have... Then you have... What was it? It was uh, the, their energy bills. There, there was energy bills in the UK, which they're getting a lot of their gas from Russia. And they sanctioned Russia. So now they get no gas. And what's happening now is some of these energy bills, and this is just ridiculous. Some of these energy bills are in the vicinity of, or even over, $1,000 a month. Just for energy. Like uh for you know, for over here in the United States, a thousand dollars a month that's either two thirds or half of a rent payment every month, depending on where you're living in the country. Uh where I'm living it's about two thirds generally, but if you're in a major city it's probably half or less than half of rent. And energy bills in the United States are what Like 150, 200, 250. It depends on how much energy you're using, really. But energy costs in the United States are low enough to where uh, I could have paid them back when I was working at Panera. I could have covered the energy bill by myself with my part-time job where I only worked weekends. I could have covered those energy bills. A thousand? Oh, no, 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 no. 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 I wouldn't want to pay that now with the income I have. And it would only take me uh, about a a week and a half to get it. But that's insane. That's just for energy. Because it's not like the other bills went away. Uh, You you still got to pay rent. And from what I can tell, rent prices over there are a bit more than they are over here. Especially in the London area. But you have all these rising costs of living... And there's no correlating pay increase because the you're not. It's it's a, it's a mess of economics. So I'll just say that much. I I can't sit here and say oh just pay them more. I know damn well that a lot of these companies, while they have the margins to pay some of them a couple cents more or maybe even a dollar more each of them, a dollar more ain't gonna cover a thousand dollars. Or a thousand pounds, so to speak. An extra pound an hour isn't going to cover a, 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 a energy bill of a thousand pounds. Like, there, there's no pay increase that companies could give. Like, because we, we know they like to keep their money on hand. We, we know that they're greedy. All right, La uh, I may be a capitalist, but corporations are greedy. They could pay everyone. Maybe a dollar or two dollars more, or in the case of the UK, they could pay you a pound or two pounds more, especially if they're like a big, big corporation. But those extra two dollars aren't going to go far enough if everything else is more expensive, so much more expensive, that you've still lost, you've still declined in your living standards. Because of the, the increase in costs. Even if you got that extra pound or two pound pay raise. There's no pay raise that the, the even the biggest corporations in the UK could feasibly give the workers and remain financially solvent. It, the, the economic problem is beyond them. Uh, but uh, regardless, some of these workers are, are on strike and they're asking for higher pay. Which I'm not entirely sure that a lot of them are going to get. Some of them might, but a lot of them won't. Because the businesses that they're asking for this from are dealing with the same economic conditions that they are. Everything costs more, and that's reaching into the capital goods. The, the things that companies buy to turn into a product. Uh, the And then you have these boycotts. And these boycotts will... Uh, Would they be boycotts or I'll just call them protests. I'm not sure boycott would be the right word. But a lot of these workers have gone on strike. There we go. There's the, the better word to use here. They've gone on strike. And a few, not a few examples, but many of these striking workers are in the transportation industries. So that would be, again, that would be... The buses, that's trains, that's dock workers, people who bring in ships and let them dock and offload and unload their stuff uh, to the airlines, people working, people loading and unloading luggage and stuff like that. And even a lot of the, even some of the, the pilots aren't showing up to work. So you have a massive strike across the entire tra- public transportation industry. And it's bringing things to a halt. It's it's causing the price of these transportation methods to go up a little bit as well. But the main inconvenience here is time. And it's, it's a very effective way of getting attention. I'll, I'll give them that. It's very effective with getting attention. But... The the protests themselves have generated opposition in the form of everyone else who uses the nation's public transportation the UK government has responded with just as unsympathetic uh, with just and as unsympathetic a manner as the commuters uh, they are they are not with the, the striking workers here they're with the commuters And They're refusing further negotiations with a lot of the striking workers. Although part of that is some of the union bosses Refusing to allow for negotiations. So there is a little bit of a back-and-forth here But as of right now the government has straight up walked away from a lot of the negotiations So a deal doesn't look like it's in the works right now So the strikes shall continue until people can't eat but then again Everyone's going to go hungry in the winter, so I, I really don't know what to tell you. The situation in the UK is bad, and it's sort of a, a microcosm of what's going on in Europe in general. Uh, just hop across the, the channel to go to France, where there always <laughs> there's always a protest in France, and you go just north of France, and you have the farmers in the Netherlands still protesting as well. Although they're protesting for a different reason, they're protesting against, you know, the, the whole Great Reset type stuff and the, the world, the, the various agendas being set forth by the World Economic Forum, uh, to which their government seems to be at least partially beholden to with regards to telling its farmers not to farm so that we can cut down on carbon. Well, that means everyone's going to starve. So the farmers are revolting and there's no food on the shelves. So, that's a very effective way of getting people's attention, too. But, at the very least, in that sense, there seems to be more sympathy to the farmers than there are to these public transportation workers in the United Kingdom. Maybe that's just a cultural difference. But, the UK is being ground ground to a halt by these internal problems. Problems which its government could resolve by undoing the sanctions on Russia... A lot of these domestic policy, uh, these domestic issues in Europe are caused by their foreign policy. Now, they have just as easy an option as the United States does, although their option means not sanctioning Russia. Whereas in the United States, our option is produce more oil and stop being, stop being slow. That's our option. <laughs> But a lot of this is reversible, at least it is now. Russia hasn't gone away completely, and they, the Russians don't necessarily want to. They would like to do business, but they're not allowed to because they're constantly sanctioned. They're constantly under investigation. They're constantly under accusation. But now Asia has gotten up there in prominence, so now the Russians are like, eh, we'll just do trade with Asia. And uh, going back to the story with uh, Nord Stream 1 and 2, if you remember, a lot of 40% of the gas that was going to go through Nord Stream 2 was already reallocated. It's already been reallocated. So even if they opened up the pipeline, it's only going to run at 60% capacity because Russia's reallocated the gas towards other clients. So while the window is technically still open to undoing this problem, And all it would take is for one of the countries in Europe to say, you know what, this is a bad idea. We're not going to sanction Russia anymore. And uh, really, it would take Germany, because they're the one who, not one, but two pipelines running into it. Uh, If Germany were to say, hey, you know what, we're going to undo the sanctions, uh, please let us have some gas. The Russians would let it run. And they'd prob- both pipelines would probably run at around 60% efficiency. There, there, there would be no more turbine issues that pop up magically. Although uh, one of them is legitimate. I know that much. But the Russians wouldn't up to playing the game. Uh, but you could at least have two pipelines running at 60% efficiency. Hey, that's, that's better than one pipeline going at 100%. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Nord Stream 2 is about equal to or larger than Nord Stream 1. So that's that, that'd be a plus. That'd be a plus if you undid the sanctions now and got two of those pipelines running at 60% capacity. That's more gas, actually, than you were getting before. But no country in Europe wants to do that. The United Kingdom certainly doesn't. So those energy costs I was talking about are going to stay at a 1,000 pounds a month. And they're they're just going to be priced out of existence. Because who can pay that? I mean, there was a partition. uh, Not a partition, a petition. Among people in Britain to boycott paying their energy bills. Now, what this is naturally going to do is... They're just going to get their power cut off. But... uh, (laughs) They're just going to get their power cut off. uh, Right before winter. So hey, at the very least, they can save up their money so they can pay for the power when winter does come. But this is this is insanity. Just looking at this, who can afford this? Who can afford this? Again, it's a matter of foreign policy for the British government. They have to undo the sanctions. That's the only way. Unless, again, you're going to look to domestic energy resources. But that's going to take time. you got to... If you're going to do this, you got to do it right. If you're going to get away from Russian energy, you got to do it right. Start by undoing the sanctions, and then begin building out your alternative energy. And I don't mean alternative energy in the form of solar and wind power. Europe, realistically, if they want energy security, it's not going to come in the form of a pipeline to any one, two, or three other countries. It's going to come in the form of coal and nuclear. Because those are the resources that Europe has available to it right now. Coal and nuclear. Now, you can do a a 70-30 split. You can do an 80-20 split. Some of them might have to do a 60-40 split. Or uh, nuclear to coal. Some of them might have to do a a 20-80 split. Nuclear to coal. But coal is their best option for domestic energy production. For across Europe. They all have it it's how they industrialize, they still haven't, because they've been, they've been so dependent on oil and natural gas for decades now, they haven't quite tapped their full coal potential, so it's there, and if they want energy security, if they want to not be beholden to Russian energy, then you're going to need your own energy, and again, making yourself beholden to yet another country for your energy just defeats the purpose, they need coal and they need nuclear. France is already 70% of the way there. If they fill out the rest, the remaining 30 with their own coal, oh, there it is. France is now energy independent. Germany has they had nuclear power plants and they had coal. They combined the two. Oh, you're energy independent now. Britain is an island. You need energy independence more than anyone else. Because you can be cut off if, for whatever reason, your navy just ain't up to snuff. Which it's not right now. Britain needs its own energy supply. Coal and nuclear. Yeah, that's the solution. That's the solution. And that would help lower energy prices to something people can afford. And, and you know, not a thousand pounds a month. If you, you, you allow that to happen, and you allow goods that you need from russia to come in again well then that's going to bring down the cost of living because a lot of the goods that people are buying which come from russia are in some way processed in russia and then make their way to the uk the the cost of those goods would come down and people could live again they could afford to live and you'll see a lot of these protests die down and the ones that don't you can negotiate with them separately maybe they'll be more willing to make a Deal now. If they see it, the tide is turning against their movement; they'll take the deal. You know, the solution for the UK has to start at the foreign policy level, so they can buy themselves the time to work it out on the domestic level. Because you can't build an energy grid overnight. You can't build a nuclear power plant overnight either. And well, I'm pretty sure the British, if anyone else. N- they, of all people, know where all their coal deposits are. You're not going to get the infrastructure for using that up and running immediately either. You've got to concede the short term so that you can win in the long term. But this is a, a concept that doesn't appear to be exercised in the slightest right now. But uh, I digress. That's a recommendation. That's a recommendation. I can tell you exactly what they need for their energy, but beyond that, uh, I don't know what the UK needs to do. Uh, Again, uh, I come about this from an American point of view, but if the UK wants, or any other European country for that matter, if they want to be able to run an independent foreign policy, whether that's as an independent nation or as a bloc of countries like in the EU, well then your country or your bloc is going to need your own energy supply before you can do or say anything. Coal and nuclear is where it's at. But I'll digress. Uh, last on the list, we have uh, some developments in the Middle East. Because, as I alluded to back in the rapid-fire news, Turkey has gained an unlikely friend. Israel. Last week, Turkey Turkey and Israel have signed, uh, they have not signed, they've agreed to restore diplomatic relations and they're reappointing ambassadors to one another's countries. And this is a direction which is completely opposite to the one they've been going in for years, uh, where they've just been drifting farther and farther apart and being generally colder and more hostile towards one another. Although. They had enough respect to where the Israelis didn't get bright ideas about bombing Turkish territory. But even regardless, it wasn't that long ago that Turkey publicly condemned Israel for its actions in Palestine. If you remember the last major round of fighting between Israel and Palestine, where the Palestinians were flying rockets and they had... Uh, Allies firing rockets in various in the territories of various countries surrounding Israel like in Jordan and Lebanon and Syria and It was a real fight at least for a little bit And there was condemnation about Israel uh, using missiles on civilian targets and I brought up that if Israel's Iron Dome hadn't shot down as many rockets as it did well we wouldn't have be we wouldn't have been talking about disproportionate responses, but I'll digress. That is the round of fighting I was talking about. But during that round of fighting, Turkey was openly uh, against Israel, and generally pro Palestine. Not overtly pro Palestine, but they were against Israel, which for the Palestinians is a win on any day. And that was only a couple months ago. But now it seems that the two are making An attempt to get along. And my guess is that this has more to do with Turkey's foreign policy than anything Israel has done to earn this. Because Israel doesn't really care much about what Turkey is doing. But, again, I believe that this is coming from Turkey's foreign policy. Because Turkey is conducting military actions in northern Syria. Actions which Israel is going to be the last country to condemn or speak out against because they conduct military actions in Syria as well. So, I guess it all comes full circle. But, yeah, that, that that's my guess as to why this is happening now specifically and not a couple months ago or a year or two ago. I imagine it's happening now precisely because of this. And Turkey's partially cashing in on the clout that they've gained from the war in Ukraine. And they have gained quite a lot of that clout to cash in. And considering, again, that Israel violates Syria's sovereignty on a regular basis themselves, usually by air rather than uh, on land, that makes them a perfect partner for this sort of, uh, you know, uh, friendship even a pseudo-friendship or alliance of convenience, what what have you. Whatever it ends up shaking out into in the end, we'll call it that, but it, Israel is a natural first partner to look to for this. Not Iran, certainly not Russia, uh, and Arabia is having a reproachment with Iran, which takes them off the table, but Israel is the perfect partner for this. So, at the very least, we can say that this is a sound judgment on the part of the Turkish government. But regardless of the reason or rationale, Israel, for the time being, has a partner in the region with an overlapping interest in military interventions in Syria. So, yeah. Things are continuing to be interesting in the Middle East in a way... ...that I enjoy watching, you know, from a million miles away. I have a feeling that if I was living in Palestine, this would be the last... <laughs> ...enjoy watching would be the last words I would use to describe this situation. But it is very interesting. And this will be a very interesting chapter in history books later on. Uh, particularly when you cover regional history. you know. But... It's that. It's a pretty all-over-the-place news week, you know. I, I almost didn't have the uh, the segment on Alexander Dugan's assassination attempt, because when I was going over it, it, it didn't seem like much, you know. Then I, when I... And that was just because I was reading the news, and I'm like, uh, and, uh, I guess I have my automatic blinders on where a, a certain language gets used. I'm like, oh, that's a super-duper biased article, and quite frankly, I don't need to read it, and um, it's helped me a lot, especially since the the war between Russia and Ukraine began in earnest, where every other article is something about Putin, and it's like, dude, <laughs> and it's just, uh, it's not even the most factual reporting you can have, it's, oh, Ukraine this, oh, Ukraine that, oh, Russia's uh, terrible, Russia's doing this, Russia's... Committing war crimes. and It's like, well, none of you have proven that. And the Ukrainians are using civilians as meat shields. Literally. They're digging themselves in urban environments where there are people. And then the Russians bomb the, the environments. And it's like, oh, how dare the Russians do this? It's like, no. Why would the Ukrainian military entrench in urban civilian areas? But alas, uh, I almost didn't even report on the assassination of this man. I'm like, how is this relevant? Uh, cause, who is he? Uh, again, I, uh, he's he's just a person who happens to be Russian in a time when Russia's at war. Uh, that's literally his claim to fame. And his daughter got assassinated because of it. But, uh, it's it, it's been wild. It's been pretty wild. Uh... Lots of, lots of minor developments, which are going to add up over time. The demographic policies in Russia and China. Uh, increased economic cooperation between the Solomons and China, which is making people in Australia and America go insane, because, you know, China is on the brain. But not here. Not on this podcast. But alas. Alas, alas, and alas, that is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hashan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.